hear God's word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you now speak to us, speak into our lives, that we would once again be inspired and transformed by the good news of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. And may it change us, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 65 years ago, on August 28, 1963, when close to a quarter million men, women, and children gathered to listen to a man speak. He was an ordinary man, but he would ignite the nation with his dream of equality. An ordinary man with an extraordinary dream. And when this man spoke, people listened. And there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., pierced both sky and heart as he proclaimed these pregnant words, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. 2,000 years ago, a much smaller group of men, women, and children gathered to listen to a man speak. He was also an ordinary man, but he had extraordinary faith. And when the formerly paralytic man spoke, People listened. Here near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we read about a man who was formerly paralyzed who actually gets up, begins to walk. And though Mark doesn't actually record for us what he may have said, Luke does in Luke chapter 5. Luke records that he glorified God. And in glorifying God, perhaps he said something like this, free at last, Free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Indeed, he was free, wasn't he? Free from the shackles of his physical torment, free from the bondage of his paralyzed life. Free because he came face to face with Jesus. And life as he knew it would never be the same again, for in Jesus this paralytic came face to face with the kingdom of God itself. For God's reign and God's rule had come in the person and work of this man's physical and spiritual restoring. Here, on these dusty roads of Palestine, Jesus Christ inaugurates a new era in history for his people. With pregnant words of his own. Words that established a new way of life. A new way of living for those who often feel so paralyzed by our lives. Paralyzed by our sin. For in this seemingly, yet again, another miracle story that we can so easily pass by. In this seemingly insignificant story about a paralytic receiving healing, we see ordinary people, ordinary people like you and me, demonstrating extraordinary faith, inspiring us. Why? Because of two simple reasons. Simple yet profound reasons that help ordinary people like you and me express extraordinary faith when life is hard. And those words are grace and faith. Words that we always hear at church, but are so profound to the way we think and live our lives for Jesus and for those around us. And so what I want to do is unpack this story. This story that's about grace and faith, essentially. By focusing on this miracle story as Jesus encounters this paralytic, this paralytic gets healed, 
But interestingly, the narrator here in Mark includes some other people in the story. There are scribes that are witnessing this event. And there are these friends, right? So what I want to do is use the scribes and the friends as our outline. And, and, and view the encounter of Jesus and the paralytic through their eyes. And what they would teach us first about grace. And then secondly, about faith. So first, the scribes. As the scribes are witnessing this miracle unfold, what can they actually teach us about grace? Because they can. You see, the first thing we learn from the interaction between Jesus and the paralytic in the midst of these Pharisees or scribes, these teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament, these professional religious leaders, we learn that this act of healing was more than just a merciful deed to a man in physical need. You see, we learn that simply this, Jesus came to earth for a reason. Not just to heal, but to do something much more profound. You see, Jesus came not just to heal those who are paralyzed physically, but perhaps more importantly, those who are actually paralyzed spiritually. And he would do it through this healer, Jesus. We know this because of two things Jesus says in front of these these Pharisees. So let's take a look at these two statements that Jesus makes. First of all, Jesus says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. If you, if, as you were hearing the scripture being read, that should have sounded odd to you. And I'll explain that. First, he says, your, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then secondly, he calls himself this title, Son of Man. Okay, So let's see how the Pharisees interact with Jesus when Jesus makes these statements. And how does that teach us about the grace of God? First, forgiveness. The scribes, in hearing Jesus make this statement, Son, your sins are forgiven. Say in verse 7, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Did you know they're actually correct? Oftentimes when we read the New Testament, we think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and as you know, they're not very fair, you see. They're quite sad, you see. That's really bad. I apologize. And you think they're, everything that they do is bad, right? These scribes. Well, actually, they're really good students of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as they knew it. And they accurately point out when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they correctly state, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, only God can forgive sins. Even the Messiah does not. That is, in the Old Testament, when the Messiah is being described, he's being described by doing a lot of things. Exterminate the godless of Israel crush demonic power, protect the people from the reign of sin. But forgiveness of sins was never attributed to the Messiah. And so in their minds, they have to make a choice when Jesus makes this statement. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, wait a minute. In the Bible, only God forgives sins. Is he saying what I think he's saying? So they have to make a choice. Is he saying that he's God himself or is he a liar and a lunatic? In their minds, they have to make a choice. Either Jesus is who he says he is, that is God himself, or Jesus is a blasphemer. Furthermore, think about Jesus' pronouncement here about forgiveness. If you're a disciple watching this scene unfold, you know, a paralytic comes down from the roof. First of all, that's crazy. This paralytic, everybody knows that he wants one thing, right? At least. 
is to receive healing. And what's the first thing Jesus says? Stand up, be healed. No, he says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine Peter going, Jesus, uh, I, I don't think that's actually what he wanted. Did you not get the memo? Or It seems so irrelevant, doesn't it? And inappropriate to the situation. It was obvious to those sitting around that this paralytic that had been dropped at Jesus' feet wanted physical healing. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what is Jesus actually saying? Because everything Jesus says and everything he does is purposeful. And so it has to clue us into something. It clues us into God's plan. That his plan involves more than just mercifully healing those who are sick. And that's a good thing, of course. But there's something actually much more profound happening here. He's saying, I I can heal him. Of course I can. But you need to know that I came to earth to heal you from something even more serious. What can be more serious than being paralyzed physically? He's saying, being paralyzed spiritually. Jesus came from heaven to earth, not just to cure the physical problem of paralysis and all the diseases that are part and parcel of this fallen world. He's saying, I've come to ultimately save you from your sins, from the ultimate paralysis that sin causes, which is death. You see, death is the ultimate paralysis that we all have to face. And so Jesus is saying with this simple statement, something profound, that the kingdom of God is now here. The long-awaited time of blessing has arrived. All these promises of God that have been given by the prophets in the Old Testament was actually happening. God himself has come. This is utterly profound. It should be shocking to you. Or, as we heard earlier, re-astonishing to you. That God himself would choose to come in the flesh to heal us of our paralysis, the paralysis of our hearts outside of Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying to those sitting around that house 2,000 years ago, but those even listening to his voice today, that he has come not only to cure the outer sickness, but also to bring healing to the inner disease of sin. He's saying that the Old Testament way of dealing with the bondage of sin that was temporal, external, and incomplete was now gone. Now he's giving you a whole new way. Jesus is pronouncing something more eternal, internal, and perfectly complete. He's saying first things first. I can heal him. In fact, we read in Mark, the sections before this in chapter 1, he's already casting out demons, unclean spirits, healing the sick, but the problem of sin still needs to be dealt with. And only Jesus can provide a solution. For he heals inside out from bondage to blessing. And this was a shocking revelation. So what he's saying here is actually very shocking to those listening. And this is what the Pharisees are wrestling with. Is God really here to save me from sin and death? Jesus is saying, yes, I've come for you. And so with this simple yet profound statement, son, your sins are forgiven, he's introducing us once again to what? To grace, to the grace of God, 
to those of us that don't deserve this kind of mercy and love, Jesus is saying, I'm here. Because you can't do it. And I'm going to do it for you. You see, grace is, this is all grace. Even with this statement. But there's more. As if that wasn't enough. There's a second statement that, again, blows the mind of these scribes and Pharisees. When he explains the authority that he has to forgive, he calls himself the strange title, the Son of Man. Think about it. He could have said a lot of things to describe himself. The Son of God. The Son of Joseph. But he uses his title, Son of Man. And again, the scribes help us understand in verse 8. We read that Jesus responds to what they were probably thinking in their hearts. Jesus' response in verse 9, the scribes were probably saying to themselves, not only is this man, Jesus, blaspheming, not only is he lying, he's actually frivolous. Anyone can say, "Your your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. But does he actually have the power and the authority to heal this man? Prove it, you blasphemer. If you truly are God, then go ahead and heal him. And so Jesus responds to the scribes, not only by healing him, but by using a specific title to help us understand who he is. He's not just a God who speaks grace, but Jesus is a God who displays grace. Who can do this? He's no mere man, no mere prophet or teacher. Jesus is saying that I am God. Here he uses a title, one of his favorite titles that he uses for himself. It actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees his prophecy, he sees his vision. And this is what he says in Daniel chapter 7. There before me was one like a son of man. So he's describing prophetically God himself. There before me was one like a son of man coming in the clouds to bring his kingdom. He was given authority Glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This was a, this was a powerful image to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the Jews who knew their Bible. They're like, this is my God. He has this much power and authority, and he's coming for me. I can't wait. And now Jesus takes this title that the scribes loved, and he goes, oh, by the way, that that son of man that you're waiting for, that you're all excited about, it's me. And I'm going to prove it to you. Stand up and walk. Because I have that kind of power and authority. You see, here's a picture of Jesus as king of kings, lord of lords, who has all power The same God who threw out the stars with his hands. The sun and the moon. Here it's being used to describe who Jesus really is. A Jesus that not only says, your sins are forgiven. But also who also says, stand up and walk. He's a king of grace, a king of glory. For he is the son of man who came not to be served. But to serve and give his life as as a ransom for many. Friends, this is grace. And remember, grace is more than just a display of kindness. Grace is someone stepping in when you could not. 
Grace is God himself entering into your time, your space, your history, saying, I care about you so much that though you utterly don't deserve it, in fact, the only thing you deserve fairly is judgment for your sin. I will enter into your life, your existence, so that you can receive freedom from your bondage to sin and death. I will take upon myself your sin and your judgment. In fact, I will die for you so you don't have to. That's what he's saying here with these two statements. It's astounding. Friends, this is grace. And this should change the way you think about God, the way you think about yourself, and the way you think about others. You see, the story is about you and me who have been paralyzed by the ravages of sin and sin's effects. And God himself is now coming to you and saying, I care about you so much that this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go to the cross and be paralyzed by your sin. Enter into the paralysis of death so that you don't have to. Beloved, this is, this is the grace of God. So this is the first thing we learn about grace, that God is all about grace in Jesus And that's what the scribes teach us, right, as they encounter this miracle. What about the friends, right? What can we learn about? The second thing we want to learn about is faith, right? What can we learn about faith from these friends as they look at this encounter between Jesus and the paralyzed friend? Talk about mission impossible. These friends hear that Jesus is in town. He's miraculously healing many who has sickness and disease. So these friends get together and say, hey, remember our buddy? Let's take our buddy to Jesus. Let's take him to the feet of Jesus. So they make their way. But unfortunately, the place is packed. It's understandable. Jesus is amazing everyone with his teaching and his healing. But these friends had a mission for the sake of their friend. And and verse 3 and 4 give us some picture of what it may have been like. But let me try to explain with a little bit more detail based on what's happening at that time and based on the kind of architecture of the houses in the first century in Palestine. First, you'll notice the first obstacle that these friends had to face, the crowds. It was actually difficult to get inside the house. In fact, they couldn't even get to the door, front door. The crowds had spilled out into the courtyard, so they just got to the front gate. So what do they say? You know what? Let's catch Jesus the next time he comes through town. No, they keep going. What do they do? They go to the side of the house. And that's when they encounter the stairs. Typical Palestinian homes were made with flat roofs that were accessible by a staircase. Because in the summertime, it would get really hot. So they would all, as the sun goes down, they would all go to the roof to cool down. So they go to the stairs. And I don't know if, I've not tried this. Maybe you have. But I would imagine it's pretty difficult to carry a man up the stairs in a thin blanket. Somehow, however, they overcome this obstacle, obstacle number two, right? They make it up. Now what do they face? Their third obstacle. They're on the roof. Typical roofs were made with a thick layer of clay supported by mats and branch, mats of branches across these wooden beams. So imagine, you know, straw and hay and mats and plants all packed together with clay that dried, Right? Again, I've never tried this, but I could kind of imagine that 
digging through a dry clay roof would be somewhat difficult without power tools. Right? But somehow, these guys, they don't give up. They actually dig a hole in someone else's house. I mean, think about that. On the roof. They, a, a, a hole big enough with whatever they can find, maybe rocks, their hands. Now, these guys don't give up at all. But that's when they meet obstacle number four, right? So the crowd, they go to the side. They have to carry him up the stairs. They actually dig a hole. Now, how are they going to lower him? I can imagine one of them thinking, well, he's already kind of paralyzed, so maybe we just drop him. (laughs) But somehow, think about it. Somehow they get some ropes or, or blankets and they lower him. Four obstacles. Incredibly difficult obstacles, any one of which we would have said, I don't think this is going to work today. Surely it's not in God's timing for you to be healed today. No, these friends are like, today's the day. I can't wait for tomorrow. My friend is in need, and I have to take him to Jesus. He needs to meet Jesus. Startled by the debris falling from the roof, Jesus stops his teaching. He looks up and notices a group of men were actually digging a hole as the owner is yelling at them, trying to lower this paralytic. As the crowd looks on with anticipation, a mattress is slowly lowered to the floor in front of Jesus. Jesus looks down at the paralytic on the mat. Jesus looks up and sees four friends looking down with anticipation. Mark doesn't record if the paralytic or his friends spoke. We don't have any record of what they said. Frankly, it didn't matter. They didn't talk. They just trusted. Their faith touched the very King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we read in verse 5, when Jesus saw what? Look, look carefully at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. is that very unique? It's, an, it's a collective term here. I'm sure the paralytic had faith too. But he's also taking into account the faith of these friends. Son, your sins are forgiven. What incredible joy, what incredible blessing that Jesus would actually pardon them and free them from death just by a simple act of trusting him. Just because they believed, they received blessing. So there are a lot of things we can say about faith here from this passage. But let me just share five simple truths about faith that I think we can learn from this passage. First, did you notice that it's faith alone in Christ alone that brought blessing? It was faith alone in Christ alone that yields blessing. Jesus teaches us that faith is the only means or instrument by which we receive healing, that we see blessing, seeing their faith Not their hard labors over the four obstacles. Wow, you guys overcame a lot. You deserve blessing. Good on you. He doesn't say that. He saw their faith, and then he blesses. Could it really be that simple? Absolutely. Faith alone yields blessing. Number two, faith is actually based on knowledge. You see, for the paralytic and his friends, they knew that only Jesus can bring healing. Jesus himself grounds blessing in his authority of who he is, the Son of Man. 
You see, faith is grounded on truth. Faith is not wishful thinking, like that train going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's wishful thinking. Faith is based on the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he can do. In fact, of what he's already done. So faith is based on knowledge, number two. Number three, (coughs) faith fuels persistence, doesn't it? Though faced with obstacles, the friends passionately accomplish their purpose. They don't give up. And so you, you learn, you see, friends, when life is hard, when you feel paralyzed by your sin and the sins of others, it's faith in Jesus and what he can do that will keep you going. It's faith that fuels persistence. Fourth, faith is ultimately also action, isn't it? It's one thing to believe that Jesus can actually bless you, but actually act on it. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal, but to actively go after it. Faith moves from the head to the heart to the hands. It's more than just a cognitive understanding and belief. It's also conviction, and it's also your life. Faith is action. Then lastly, faith involves others, doesn't it? The paralytic couldn't have done it without his friends. He needed them. You see, the friends, the Christian life we know is not a solitary journey. Me and Jesus, sands of the seashore, right? It is that, but it's much more than that. Praise be to God. It's not a solitary walk, but a journey with others who are bound together in our common union with Christ. The blood of Jesus binds us all together. We need each other. And that's one of the beautiful things about the church. That's why we call each other fathers and brothers, mothers and sisters, daughters and sons, because we're actually one family because of what Jesus has done. This is faith, simple and yet so utterly profound. Remember what the writer of Hebrews tells us? That without faith, it's impossible to please God. Did you hear that? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Those are God's promises to us. And so this is what Jesus is teaching us. Not only grace and what he's done for us in becoming the paralytic for us and taking our sins Our death on the cross, that's grace. And now he's calling you, based on that grace, to a life of faith. To live now faithfully for others. This grace of Jesus, of what he's done for us on the cross, is now calling us to help those who feel often so spiritually paralyzed. To bring those in your circles to the feet of Jesus. So think. Think about the people in this room. Think about the people in your life that need to be brought to the feet of Jesus. The greatest gift we can give to our lost and hurting friends, spouses, children, neighbors in our church and this community is to bring them and lay them at the feet of Jesus. I'm sure there are people even in this room who are in need, who are hurt, feel paralyzed by their sin or the sin of others and they need you they need you to demonstrate the gift of kingdom faith because of the grace that you have received 
In fact, you mentioned earlier that this is the mango pulpit. We need to learn from the mango tree. I've been told that the mango tree is very extraordinary. I don't know if you knew this, but a mango tree, when a a limb breaks, a a branch breaks on the mango tree, maybe because of weather or because someone snaps it off, the whole tree actually stops growing. And all the cells and all the nutrients used to grow the tree are now redirected to that one broken limb. And only when that broken limb begins to grow again will the rest of the tree grow with it. What a beautiful picture of the church. Who are the broken limbs in your life? And will this church stand and go to that broken limb and then grow together? You see, the astonishing grace of God unleashes ordinary people like you and me to demonstrate extraordinary faith. So friends, don't let the opportunity pass to think about those who need to be brought to the feet of Jesus because of the grace of Jesus. From bondage to blessing, from death to life, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for teaching us this morning about grace and faith, indeed the breathtaking grace of the gospel, the gospel that declares how much you love us in Jesus And now by your spirit, would you move us, inspire us, challenge us, comfort us to demonstrate our gratitude to you for all that you've done as we bring others to your feet. Help us to not only understand, but reveal grace through faith as ordinary people demonstrate extraordinary faith all because of Jesus. Father, we know we cannot do this without your help. Thank you for your provision of Jesus, but also for the power of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and help us that we would display the kind of faith, hope, and love that you yourself have already shown us in Jesus. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.